0: Hear the word of the Lord to you today. This is from Luke 23 verses 26 through 49. And as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry?" Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the Skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. This is the word of the Lord to you today.
1: Father, now as we have read your word publicly, we've heard your word, Lord, we pray that you would speak to our hearts. As we focus in on the cross of Christ, the death of Christ, and we consider its significance for us and for the world, we pray, Lord, that you would awaken in our hearts faith in Jesus and that you would awaken in our hearts a desire to to put him first and to make him Lord in our lives every single day. We love you. We thank you so much for your love for us that's on full display through the death of your son. We commit this time of Bible study to you now, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. The year was 312 AD. The battle was Milvian Bridge. On one side, invading the imperial city of Rome, was a man who would come to be known in history as Constantine the Great. Opposing him was a man with a very large force named Maxentius, who happened to be his brother-in-law. You thought your family had issues. Surprisingly, Constantine won a victory at Milvian Bridge, and he defeated Maxentius, who perished. He drowned in the river Tiber during the battle. This gave Constantine control over the Western Roman Empire, and it the way for Constantine to actually consolidate power over all of the Roman Empire there in the 4th century. Eusebius was a friend of Constantine's. He was also a historian of the early Christian church. And Eusebius tells us the events that were surrounding the victory there for his friend Constantine at the Milvian Bridge, and he tells us that he got this story from none other than Constantine himself evidently according to the emperor before the battle took place he and his troops saw a cross of light actually over the sun and Constantine up to that point actually worshiped the sun but he sees this cross of light over the sun with the words in this sign conquer and then he says that night he had a dream And in that dream, he says that Christ himself visited him and told him that he should use the sign of the cross against his enemies. So Constantine actually painted crosses on the shields of all of his troops before they marched into battle against Maxentius. Constantine attributed the victory that he had there to the Christian God, and this ultimately led to Constantine's alleged conversion to Christianity as well as paving the way for Christianity to become the official religion of the empire. And that day, the symbol of the cross was mainstreamed. From that day forward, the cross would become a symbol that would become popular globally as the church continued to expand outward. Today, the cross, as you and I know, is no longer a symbol of death, necessarily, or a symbol of shame. The cross is a religious symbol, or in some cases, a fashion symbol. People might get a cross tattoo on their body, or we might wear a cross on a necklace, or maybe on earrings, or it might be on our clothing. And so the cross has become, again, a religious symbol, or a fashion symbol. And that's because through Jesus' death on a Roman cross... Listen, the cross itself was infused with new meaning as it accomplished forgiveness of sins and granted access to God. Here as we're studying the life of Jesus of Nazareth, according to Luke, we come to the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to unpack some of what the cross means for you and for me and for the world around us. So what do we learn about the cross from Luke's telling of the story that Vanessa just read for us? Well, first, I want to talk to you about the work of the cross. The work of the cross. In other words, I want to answer for you the question, what did the cross actually do What did the cross of Jesus actually accomplish and how did it accomplish that? Answer, the cross made it possible for sinful people to be forgiven of their sins and to be brought into right relationship with God. Again, the cross made it possible for sinful people, people like me, People like you, to be forgiven of our sins and to be brought into right relationship with God. Jesus, you'll notice in the text, could look over at another cross next to him, at a serious criminal, an insurrectionist, probably a murderer, and he could assure him of everlasting life. He could assure this man that this man would not be judged by God. And trust me when I say that that's exactly what this man would have expected. That because of all the heinous things he had done in his life, he could expect that, man, when I die on this cross in a few minutes, I'm going to have a, a reckoning with God Almighty. And Jesus could say, Today, you will be with me in paradise. Today, in just a few moments, you will actually not experience God's judgment, but rather you'll be forgiven and accepted and the reason for that church and we can never ever allow ourselves to tire of hearing this the reason for that is because in his death Jesus would receive God's judgment against sin for all who put their faith in him just like this man did hanging there on a cross and that's the first thing that we have to get our minds around if we're going to fully understand the significance of the death of Jesus of Nazareth on a cross, is the idea that God will really judge people for their sin. Oh no, somebody's saying. Here goes the preacher talking about a God of judgment. Haven't we moved beyond that? Aren't we progressives? Why are we still talking about a God who judges people? Isn't God just a God of love? Shouldn't God only be a God of acceptance? Shouldn't God just simply forgive? How can we imagine a God who judges? I know it's become common for people to be repulsed at the idea of a God who judges. As if, listen closely, as if that somehow is a defect in His character. He shouldn't be that way. What is He, a, a grumpy old man in the sky? God shouldn't be like that. But friends, you need to understand that the truth of the matter is that for God not to judge people in their sin would actually be a defect in His character. Because what that would mean is that God is actually a God of injustice. Did you know that justice requires judgment? That's an essential part of what it means to be just. And this really matters to people in this country. As Americans, we rightly, highly value justice, do we not? I mean, think of the end of the Pledge of Allegiance. It's liberty and justice for all. We want that to be a universal reality in our society that people are treated with justice. Well, guess what? Justice requires judgment. And the thief on this cross had no problem understanding that. Look what he's able to say in verse 41. He's, He's experiencing the death sentence, and he's not complaining about it. He says this in verse 41. He says, and we, he's talking to the other thief, the other criminal, he says, and we indeed, here's the key word, justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. Again, he's able to understand that justice demands judgment. We have done heinous things. We have injured other human beings. We have wronged people and therefore we're justly receiving what we deserve. And I think the more we stop and just reflect for a moment, the more we understand this too. I mean, anytime we see somebody commit a crime, and I'm not talking a parking violation, but especially, right, a heinous crime, when we see somebody commit a heinous crime, something that nobody has a problem looking at and saying, yeah, that's actually wrong and that's actually criminal. Every single one of us are expecting and hoping for justice, which means some form of judgment. Whether that's repayment of the things that they have taken and stolen or whether that's maybe community service to pay back the community that they wronged or or maybe that's a prison sentence. That's what we expect to be carried out in the name of justice. Even with small offenses, you'll notice that things inside of us cry out for justice. About a month ago, my family and I were down at Hendry's Beach. And we were parking our vehicle, and I'm unloading my boys out of the car. And all of a sudden, I hear, boom. I look up, and this young gal had backed her car up in the parking lot there, and she backed it into somebody's truck. And I'm like, oh, wow, she hit that pretty hard. The whole truck shake, or had shaken. And then all of a sudden, she pulls back into her spot. And so all of a sudden, now I'm curious. I'm kind of observing. What's she going to do, right? And she's, I can see she's kind of scared. And there was a girl getting into the car next to her. And, and she's like, is there any damage on my car? And the girl looks at her bumper. And she's like, no, it looks good to me. So she's getting ready to back out. My wife's like, honey, go. So, you know, I... Stepped inside my car and came back out in my Superman gear. I walk over and I go, excuse me. And she goes, yeah. And I, I, go, I go, you just hit that truck. And she's like, oh, I know. And I go, well, you need to leave a note on that car. You need to let him know that there's a dent there. You need to let him know that you did this and take responsibility for this. And she's like, oh, yeah, okay, I'll do that. I didn't have a, or she said something about not having a pen. She said, I'll get one from the other girl. I said, okay. I walk back to my car. I'm loading the kids, but I'm watching. She's talking to the girl for a second. All of a sudden, she backs out. The problem with Hendry's Beach, though, is in that front parking lot, you come in, and she's on the aisle where you enter, and you circle around when you hit the beach, and you got to come right back out on my aisle. <laughs> and so this inner sense of justice is kicking in, and I'm like, ah, not on my watch. <laughs> so she comes looping around. She's trying to take off, and I come out from the bed of my truck. And I just stand in the road. She stops. And I go, hey, you didn't leave a note on that car. And she goes, I didn't have a piece of paper. Do you have one? I was looking for a piece of paper. Sure you were. I go, oh, okay, yeah, sure. My wife will grab something. So of course, Erica hands her a piece of paper. She writes a little note. She gets out and she puts it on the car. And I'm thinking to myself, I should take a picture of her license plate. But to be honest, the truck was really beat up and had tons of dents. And I even told her, this is probably not going to care, but this is the right thing to do. She takes off. Not of curiosity, I walk over and I pull the note off of the windshield and I opened it up to see, yeah, she put her contact info. All it said was sorry. And she had left that note there. I was so frustrated. Even though the guy wouldn't even want her money probably. and It was a beater truck. I'm like, you're everything that's wrong in the world. <laughs> you are everything that's wrong in the world. I have had my truck hit in the last year three different times in parking lots and walked out with these dents and there was no note left me, And guess who has to now pay for somebody else's problem? I do. It's an injustice. Of course, it's a tiny one. But again, the greater the injustice, the easier it is for us to see. Something needs to be done about that. Justice requires judgment. And this innate desire for justice that we all universally share is ours because guess what? We are created in the image of, of a just God. Therefore, as Christians, we believe with all of our hearts that in the universe that we're living in, and even in Hendry's parking lot, we believe that justice will carry the day. We believe that every single wrong is going to be righted. We believe that every single injustice that's ever been perpetuated on humanity will actually be judged. But bringing this back to the cross... Y'all need some good news right now. I need some good news right now this morning. Let's bring this back to the cross. Here is the good news of the cross. The good news of the cross, friends, is that Jesus stepped in to take God's judgment in our place. That's what happened at Calvary's Hill 2,000 years ago. And that's why even hardened criminals, like this man hanging on a cross next to our Savior, is able to experience forgiveness through Jesus Christ. In this narrative that we just read, we see the moment when God's judgment landed on Jesus. It's there in verse 44, where we read that darkness covered the land for three hours. Luke points out that this occurred during the sixth hour. That's important. The sixth hour is actually high noon. The hottest and the brightest point of the day. And he says that the the darkness lasted for three hours. Therefore, we can conclude that something significant is happening. We can conclude that this darkness has a purpose behind it because guess what? At 12 p.m. today, we're not going to go outside and see darkness cover the land for three hours. So there's significance here. Commentator and Pastor R. Kent Hughes notes this, I'm quoting him, he says, the Old Testament identified darkness as a cosmic sign of mourning." Amos, he says, had long before prophesied that there would be darkness at the time of the the day of the Lord, saying this, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will make it like the morning for an only sun. Amos 8, 9, and 10. So the reason for the divine mourning that was taking place, that's being conveyed through darkness over the land, was because at this moment, during those three hours when darkness covered Calvary's hill, the sin of the world was being placed on the Lord Jesus Christ. The judgment that you and I deserve for all of the wrong things that we have done in our lives was actually being placed on Jesus. It landed on Him in that moment. Where the Father was, according to 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, making Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him, listen, you and me might become the righteousness of God. Jesus bearing our penalty. Jesus taking the wrath of God upon Himself so that you and I could experience forgiveness. This is the great news of the gospel. But it doesn't stop there, like an infomercial. But wait, there's more. Not only did the death of Christ, not only did the cross make it possible for your sins to be forgiven, but it also gives us access to God the Father. What do I mean? In verse 45, we learned that because of the cross, through the death of Jesus, the curtain of the temple was torn In two. What was the curtain in the temple? In the Jewish temple there in Jerusalem, there was the in the deepest recesses of the temple, there was a a room, a chamber called the holiest of holies. This is where the Ark of the Covenant sat. This is what Indiana Jones was looking for. It was there at this point in human history in the Holy of Holies. And in that inner chamber, that's where the divine mercy seat was. And that's where God's presence was mediated between his people on earth, the Jewish people. And this inner chamber was separated from the rest of the temple by a curtain. Now we read in the ancient histories that this curtain was actually the the width, or the depth, I should say, of a man's hand. So, So this was not just a little thin curtain. This was massive, and this thing was gigantic. I think some 40 feet tall, if I recollect correctly. So this was super thick, super heavy. And what it communicated was separation. Inside that room is where God is. And therefore it's holy. And nobody was allowed to enter. And if you did enter, you were struck dead immediately. Because friends, listen, in our sinfulness we have no right to enter into the presence of a holy God. The only exception to that was once a year when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies bringing in the the blood of the sacrificed animals as an offering for himself and as an offering for the sins of the people. And yet at the moment that Jesus our Savior died on Calvary's hill, We read that that curtain of separation was actually torn in two. In Matthew's gospel, we learn that it was ripped from the top to the bottom, indicating that this was God's doing. And, And we read that that gigantic, heavy, dense curtain was cut through like a knife going through butter. What did that mean? Well, what it meant, on one hand, was that the days of the temple were done. Remember, we talked about that a few weeks ago. That Jesus is now the temple. Jesus is the way that we access God. But it also means that you and I now are no longer outside of the curtain. That in Christ, you and I have access into the presence of God because in Christ, we are holy now. Our sin is dealt with. And in Christ, we are righteous and we are able to actually experience God. The author of Hebrews talks about this for us in Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, He says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. God's people could never draw near they could never go inside beyond the curtain. But in Christ, you and I have access now to the Father. So what is the work that the cross accomplished? The cross made it possible for sinners like you and sinners like me to have our sin forgiven and to have access to Almighty God. Next we learn about, and these other points are going to start coming quick, more quickly. Next we learn about, in Luke's telling of the story of Jesus' death, the wisdom of the cross. Back in verse 35, if you look down at your Bibles, we read this. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. In other words, what the religious leaders were saying is this. They were saying, the Messiah would never die like that. If He's truly God's chosen one, if He's truly the Messiah of Israel, let Him get down from that cross. Because that is not the way the Messiah rolls. (laughs) The Messiah doesn't die like that. See, the Jewish religious leaders were well aware of all the Old Testament prophecies about this coming Messiah, this coming Deliverer, Savior of God's people. They were well aware that these prophecies said that the Messiah, the Chosen One, was actually going to be a son of David, the greatest king in Israel's history, and that this Messiah would sit on his father, David's throne, and that as he sat on David's throne, that he would rule over all of the earth. And so as they're looking at the fact that their nation had been under Roman occupation for decades, they concluded, and this seems sensical enough, they concluded when Messiah comes, he will crush the Romans, not be crucified by them. So this didn't add up. If he's really the Christ, let him get off that cross, let him prove to us that he is who he said he is, and let him go march on Rome. The problem was they didn't understand the full picture of what God was after. Yes, God would bring every tribe, every tongue, every nation under the rule of Christ Jesus the Lord. And that will happen when Christ returns. But in His first coming, Jesus was doing something that these religious leaders could have never imagined. See, under the Old Testament law, Your sins and my sins were merely temporarily covered through the sacrifices of animals. But Jesus, God's appointed Savior, came not just to cover our sins temporarily. Jesus came to completely and eternally remove our sins from us. The religious leaders were misreading parts of the Old Testament. That's why in the next chapter, Luke 24, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus could say to two of his disciples who were completely depressed because Jesus was crucified after he had risen from the dead, he says to these disciples, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Translation, you should have seen this coming the whole time. Isn't this what the prophets were always saying? Have you never read Isaiah 53 that talked about the suffering servant who would be crucified for our sins and our iniquities would be laid on him? Again, under the Old Testament law, our sins couldn't be removed. Access to God would always be limited. But God in His infinite wisdom sent His only Son as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of God. Of the world, John one twenty nine, He could do for us what sacrificed animals never could. Why is that? Well, being fully human, Jesus could be identified with us and he could be our substitute. He was like us in every way, yet without sin. And you'll notice even in this, this text, you'll see the emphasis on his innocence, which points to his sinfulness or his sinlessness. Verse 41, the thief on the cross can acknowledge that Jesus had never done anything wrong. He's innocent. Pilate, back in verse 22, the Roman governor said the same thing. Herod, the Jewish king, back in verse 14, said the same thing. Even the centurion in verse 47 says the same thing. The consensus is, this man is righteous. Jesus is not sinful. 1 John 3.5 You know that He appeared in order to take away sins. And in Him there is no sin, not one. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law for you. So that you and I, by faith in Him, could share in His righteousness. And we could be acceptable before the Father. But not only that, being fully God, Jesus was capable of, of bearing the full wrath that our sins deserved. How many of you, when you were children, ever played with magnifying glasses outside with the sun? By a show of hands, right? You guys remember that? How many of you would take a magnifying glass, you kind of squat down low, and you'd, you'd try to take the sun's light and you would, you would focus it If you were a little boy, probably on paper or something, because boys are pyros, you'd light it on fire, right? It would burn it. Or maybe you'd concentrate the heat of the sun, the light of the sun, you'd concentrate it on a little bug or something, right? Because little boys are morbid. Maybe it's just the boys who did all this stuff. But, But remember we would do that. The sun shining, this bright light, all of this heat that it's sending out into our galaxy and yet through a magnifying glass, we could concentrate it and focus it on a single object. And its intensity was magnified. Did you know on the cross, God focused and concentrated his judgment against sin onto his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ all of our sin, all of the sin, for all of God's people, for all of history, in that three-hour period of time, are focused in with blazing hot intensity on the Lord Jesus Christ. And because Jesus, yes, He's fully man, but because He's fully God, rather than that wrath which would take you and I all of eternity to pay for, that wrath, Rather than obliterating Jesus Christ, he obliterated it. And after those three hours of enduring our judgment, enduring God's wrath, he could say, it is finished. There's nothing left, church, because of who Jesus is. And in the greatest plot twist in all of human history, you and I, listen to this, you and I are saved From God, by God, for God. This is the wisdom of God. This is what the religious leaders could have never foreseen. But God strung this plan of salvation together for you and for me. Oh, the wisdom of God. Here's what Paul says in Romans 11. Verses 33 through 36, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Third, we learn about the way of the cross this morning. This is so important for us to not miss. For Constantine and for many others, unfortunately, throughout the history of the church, the way of the cross has been the way of the sword. From that day forward with Constantine, there was a marriage in Western civilization between church and state. And many people during that period of church history Wrongly thought that Christianity expands as our empire expands. And so for people like Constantine, again, the way of the cross was the way of the sword. But did you know the the cross teaches us the exact opposite? The way of the cross is the way of love. I want you to notice what Jesus says in verse 34. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. One of the most profound, one of the most soul-stirring prayers in all of the Bible. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And church, we are at this moment ascending to the greatest heights of Christian discipleship here as we are seeing our own Lord Jesus practicing what He preached, as Jesus taught us that normal people love those who love them, Jesus said, I want you to learn to love your enemies. I want you to learn to bless those who are seeking to harm you. Now most of us, if we're honest with ourselves this morning, struggle to effectively love the people in our lives that we love. Right? You love your spouse. You love your children. And yet we struggle to just consistently love them. And so what a challenge it is when Jesus looks at us and says, you need to learn to love your enemies. Most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, have little to no experience at enemy love. You know, it wouldn't have surprised anybody that day on Calvary's hill of Jesus from the cross as He's hanging there if he would have cursed his executioners. After all, this is a young man in the prime of life who's being wrongly executed at the hands of the Romans. How in the world could Jesus, as he's hanging their moments from his own death, petition for their blessing? Well, in part, it was because of their ignorance. Jesus said they know not what they do. What did he mean by that? He meant, well, The soldiers like this centurion here are just going along with orders. The common average Jew here is just following the leading of their religious leaders. Even the leaders themselves are thinking that what they're doing is they're executing a renegade heretic. So Jesus is saying they don't know what they're doing. There's a level of ignorance here. But church, and this is where this is going to come home for us, of even greater significance, Jesus knew that his death was not the end. Jesus knew that actually his death would lead to an eternal weight of glory for himself and for every single person who would choose to follow after him. And this is the key for us. Did you know that the cross changes our perspective on suffering and death? Because, let me say this to you, if it is true that death is not the end, if it is true that for those of us who choose the way of the cross in our lives and choose to follow Jesus and pick up our own crosses like Him, if it's true that what is waiting for us on the other side of our sufferings, what is waiting for us on the other side of our suffering, of our abuses that we endure, and the mistreatments of other people is actually an eternal weight of glory, then we might actually, by the Spirit's power, find the resources in the here and now to when the nails go in, allow love to pour out. That's what Jesus did. When the nails went in, love... Poured out, and friends, we have got to get our minds around the the fact that this is the way that Christianity conquers. It is not with a sword; it is through self-sacrificial love. And the early church got this. You'll remember in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, one of the the early preachers, great preachers of Christianity, he is in Jerusalem. He's preaching the good news of Jesus to the religious leaders. He's trying to tie all these loose ends together like I'm trying to do for you this morning. And guess what they do? They get really, really mad and they grab stones and they say, let's kill this guy. And Stephen, a young man in the prime of life, much like the Lord Jesus, rather than retaliating, here's what he says. Acts 7.60, And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Amazing. Do you know who was impacted by the words of Stephen at his death? a man who was in charge of the execution by the name of Saul of Tarsus, who was radically altered. And for sure, a part of it was because of what he saw in Stephen at his execution. And Saul of Tarsus would become the great apostle Paul, who himself wrapped his mind around this, who himself in Acts chapter 16, when he's wrongly imprisoned, in a jail cell in Philippi and he's tortured and him and his buddy Silas are beaten and they're in a cold dungeon at midnight. They're able to sing hymns to God and they're able to pray. And an earthquake is sent by the Lord and a dungeon cracks open and their chains are broken off. And what would most prisoners do during a prison break? Especially after you just got your whole back torn open and you were beaten and mocked by the guys that are standing outside right there? You'd say... Let's kill him! You'd run out and you'd attack the guards and you would beat them to death and you would say, ha, 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 and you'd run out for freedom. Do you know what Paul and Silas were able to do? They were able to instead, when the nails went in, allow love to flow out. They showed mercy and grace to their jailer. They preached the gospel to him and his heart was un. Done, and he converted, and his entire family converted. And friends, I want to tell you this morning that as you trace the history of the church down through the ages, hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of followers of Jesus Christ have chosen the way of love rather than the way of hatred or the way of violence, and it has transformed the world. And this morning, my prayer for us has been for those of you who are saved, that you're Christians this morning, that we would have a fresh awakening of the wonder of the cross to the extent that we would be the type of people who could overlook the offenses of others. Because too many of us as Christians are living in the atmosphere of my six-year-old, who, and I thank God it's jokingly, but who jokingly says this, you'll pay for that. That's his favorite statement to make. You'll pay for that. And that's where a lot of us are living. Somebody does something to you, we struggle to even overlook the smallest of offenses. Oh, that God would change our hearts. Oh, that God would make us a people that when the nails go in, love pours out. Because if that could happen, that grace flowing from your life would change the world. Fourth and finally, we're reminded in this text of the wonder of the cross friends did you know that over the last 2,000 years across all of planet earth over every continent in almost every nation and in hundreds of languages as the story of Jesus' death has been unpacked millions upon millions upon millions of people have been left in awestruck wonder And we see that happen even here on the first day as these events unfolded in real time. I want you to notice the centurion's response. This man was the one who supervised the execution of Jesus. As they were walking through the city to the place to be executed, he overheard Jesus' concern for the women of the city when Jesus basically said to them, don't cry for me. Cry for yourselves and cry for your children. Jesus is warning them of the judgment to come. And this centurion hears that. The centurion heard Jesus pray to the Father for His own forgiveness and for the forgiveness of everybody else who was responsible for killing Jesus. This centurion heard Jesus promise this repentant criminal on the cross that today he would be with Jesus in paradise in His kingdom. And sitting at the foot of the cross, this centurion experienced this abnormal, eerie darkness that surrounded Golgotha for three hours. And ultimately, this centurion heard Jesus peacefully offer up His Spirit to His Father. And seeing all of this left this centurion in awestruck wonder. Now in Luke's Gospel, we read what he said. He said, surely this man is just or innocent. But that's not all he said. In Mark's gospel, we find out that this centurion in Mark 15, 39 also said, truly this man was the son of God. This centurion, upon seeing these events, had his heart wrecked. He was left in wonder at who Jesus was. I want you to also notice something about Simon of Cyrene. In Mark's Gospel, we learn that Simon's family was known to the church. It's recorded there that he was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Interestingly, Paul sends greetings to a Rufus at the end of his letter to the Roman church. And many people have surmised that Simon, much like the centurion, who was an eyewitness to the astonishing death of Christ, was forever changed by him on that day. Simon, who knew firsthand what it meant to carry the cross of Jesus, continued to carry that cross for the rest of his earthly life. And as I said a moment ago, down through the ages, on every continent, in hundreds of nations, across hundreds of languages, everywhere that the message of the cross of Jesus Christ has been carried, it has struck people with a sense of wonder. A sense of of praise and a sense of worship. And it has led many to make the same declaration as this Roman centurion. Truly, this man is the Son of God. So what about you? What about me? Well, in closing, let's bring this home to each one of us. If you've already come to that conclusion about Jesus at some point in your life, the hope as we've looked again at the cross of Jesus this morning is that your heart has been ennobled and empowered by the Holy Spirit to once again trust and treasure Jesus and to hopefully by God's grace continue down that road of discipleship ascending even to the furthest heights so that every single day of your life When other people mistreat you, when things aren't going right for you, when the nails come in, your retaliation is love. Because that's what will change the world. But if you've joined us this morning and you're not a Christian, you've never drawn that conclusion about Jesus before, but perhaps by God's grace, as you sat in this church this morning, you're sitting here and you're sensing in your own heart a sense of wonder about who Jesus is and about all that he's done for you. And today you're saying, I I believe in Jesus. I want to believe in Jesus. I want my sin forgiven. I want to be reconciled to my father in heaven. Guess what? I've got good news for you. You're only a prayer away. Just like this thief on the cross who had a change of heart and a change of mind about who Jesus is. In the other Gospels, he was also mocking Jesus originally, but he had a change of heart and a change of mind and realized, no, 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 Jesus is the sinless one. Jesus is the one who can save me. Jesus is the king of the kingdom. And he cried out to Jesus in that final moment of his life, and he asked Jesus to remember him in paradise. And Jesus said to him, today, it's going to happen for you. You're only a prayer away. And as you pray to Jesus, a prayer of faith, meaning that now you are choosing to believe and trust in Jesus to save you. And as you pray a prayer of repentance, meaning you're having a change of heart about your own sin, saying this isn't the way to live anymore. And I'm responsible for these things, but I'm going to turn away from those and cling to Jesus because he died for my sins. A prayer like that, if you were to pray a prayer like that, here today, Jesus would say to you, hopefully not today you'll see me in paradise. But maybe someday, when the end of the road comes for you, you will see me, you'll be with me in paradise. And why wouldn't you want that? Let's pray together. God, we come to you this morning, hopefully with hearts that are just undone, as we've once again focused our attention in on this central event in human history the death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the perfect one, who in that moment, in that time of darkness, became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Lord, I pray that you would grip our hearts this morning. And Lord, I pray for anyone here today, who has never put their faith in you, Jesus, that today would be a day of decision. Today would be a day of turning. Where instead of trying to be the captain of their own ship and run their own life, they would recognize that Jesus, you are in charge. You are the Lord of glory. You are the King of the kingdom. And I pray that they would have a change of heart. That they would declare you as Lord of their life. and That they would begin to walk the way of the cross as a disciple of you, Jesus. And as we're praying now and our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, if that describes you, if you're sensing that you have had a change of heart and a change of mind about Jesus this morning and you want to declare Him as Lord, you want to call out to Him to save you just like this thief on the cross, I want to lead you in a prayer of faith. It's not a magical prayer. But I'll tell you this, that if in your heart you truly believe these things, then Jesus promises to come into your life and he promises to forgive your sins and he promises to write your name in the book of life. And if you want to do that, I want to invite you right now in your seat to pray this prayer, a prayer of faith from your heart after me. Lord Jesus, I know that I have sinned against you. I know that many times in my life I have done the wrong things when I should have done the right things. And I know that because God is just that I deserve to be judged for these things. But I also believe this morning that because of your great love, you came to this earth. You became a man. You lived a righteous life. You died in my place. And three days later, you rose again, defeating even death. So today, I choose to follow you. Today, for the first day, I begin to pick up my cross. I'm choosing to live the way of the cross. I pray you'd help me for the rest of my days. Thank you for loving me and accepting me. In
0: Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Amen.